What's luck? What's skill? There are times where, you know, you can ride some waves and you look like a complete genius. It's a really difficult thing to, to pull apart, like all these risk factors. And am I just looking at something that was an artifact of the environment of that, of that five, 10 year period? Am I looking at just it, it, like, how am I? Uh, and I've got various quantitative tools to kind of uh, try to pull those apart, but it's, it's never black and white. It's almost never black and white. It's, it's, it's trying to assess and, and understand and pull apart luck versus skill. And it's, it's, um, it's not an easy thing to do. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Clint Stone. Clint is SVP of Investments at the family office of the Larry H. Miller Company in Salt Lake City. Clint has worked in the investment industry over a number of decades as an Alice asset allocator, manager, selector on both the sell side and the buy side. Clint, great to have you talking to us today. How is everything on your side? Thanks, Alan. Great to be here. A beautiful day in Salt Lake City. Good stuff. I'm sure it is uh, nice and sunny. Well, maybe to um, to set the stage for today, I did mention that you've kind of uh, transitioned through a number of different roles in the investment industry. So it might be useful just to get a sense on your own journey in the investment world and, and what's brought you to your current position. You bet. I started my career right here in Salt Lake City. Uh, I got a, got a degree in finance at Southern Utah University. And uh, uh, started at Fidelity Investments and Goldman Sachs uh, in their private wealth management business here in Salt Lake City before uh, going back east to get my MBA. That led to roles in investment research. I really wanted to make the transition to uh, stock picking and investment research. 
And, uh, and so that's what I did. Worked for Bear Stearns Asset Management as an equity analyst when they were still around. Uh, they had a large cap value fund and uh, studied during my two years at uh, getting my MBA at Cornell. I was also part of a student-run hedge fund there where I uh, did industry research and valuations and stock picking and um, surprised myself coming out of my MBA program and really wanted to uh, look at the world from a broader perspective. And so I joined the, uh, the Cornell University Investment Office. And instead of picking stocks, I was picking countries and picking strategies and um, doing asset allocation work and manager selection work and uh, just kind of fell in love with it, really enjoyed it. Um, it. Gave me a bigger view of the world and it just kind of fit with, with my goals. Uh, moved back home to Salt Lake City to join a large nonprofit institutional investment firm called Enzyme Peak Advisors. And then two years ago, joined uh, some friends here at the Larry H. Miller Company. Uh, they were going through a very big transition with two big liquidity events of selling the Utah Jazz and uh, selling the car dealerships. Uh, and it was just a really, really cool opportunity to be part of the team that to help write the next chapters here at uh, the Larry H. Miller Company. Good stuff. And obviously, um, be useful to, uh, as well to get a bit of background on the Larry H. Miller company in the sense that you're, you're involved on the investment side and on two distinct sides there. Is, isn't that correct? On the kind of foundation or, or family office side, as well as the investing of, 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 the, uh, of, the, of, of the holding company, I guess. That's right. Really fun role for me, really meaningful role for me. I've been in, I've been in the nonprofit space, nonprofit portfolio management space for the last, call it 15 years. And uh, having a foot on the foundation side with uh, the Larry and Gail Miller Family Foundation uh, is really meaningful to me. So the team I built and put together, get to manage and oversee that, uh, that foundation, which is about $700 million today and, and getting bigger. And then also having a foot on the company side, the taxable side of the family office, uh, which uh, is a very, very different um, goals and, and uh, investment approach. And so uh, just been a lot of fun to, to have a foot on both sides of the house and, uh, and be able to continue my, my work on endowment style portfolio management with the foundation and being able to look at individual deals and companies uh, on the Larry H. Miller company side, which is really just uh, in their DNA, owning and operating businesses, and and uh, is is really all we do. Our kind of our own private equity platform uh, on, on the company side. Interesting. Well, maybe if we start off with the foundation side, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the, the, the other side as well. But I mean, it's mentioned at the outset it's a foundation. I guess it's long term money, seven hundred million. If you were to kind of compare and contrast how you have to run this portfolio now as a kind of foundation family office versus, say, how the likes of a Cornell University might run their kind of endowment portfolio? You bet. We use a very classic endowment style approach, uh, but there are some differences. It's, uh, things that I've learned along the way that I want to implement here. Um, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, what is my edge? How can I compete? Uh, global markets are a very competitive space, and and uh, what can I do to to bring a competitive advantage and do something unique with the resources and the and the team 
uh, that we have here that we that we built here at, at at LHM. So we use eight buckets uh, for asset classes: four publics, four privates. My four publics are fixed income, U.S. equities, international equities, and multi-asset. Multi-assets just a catch-all. Most mostly hedge funds, but could be anything in there from from crypto to uh, just anything that doesn't fit uh, in any of the any of the other buckets. And then my four private asset classes are private equity, venture capital. We split those out, model those from a risk perspective uh, and a return perspective differently. And then uh, real estate and natural resources. We use those uh, eight building blocks for the foundation and uh, uh, really kind of the core of, of, of everything that we do here. And, you know, it's interesting um I read a paper recently around how a lot of institutional asset allocations, you know, may look diversified in sense of having allocations to different um, asset classes, but ultimately may have a lot of equity or economic risk in, in the portfolio, which I guess is probably fair to say about your portfolio. I guess the flip side, uh, in terms of managing that, I guess is your long-term time horizon. Is that it, or, or, or is that is that why you're happy to be kind of very concentrated in that uh, equity, economic risk type of factor? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about risk and how we define risk here, how I define risk, my single biggest risk for the foundation is not meeting its objectives and its goals. And so I could, I could put the whole thing in T-bills and have 100% liquidity. I would never have a year where I would have a negative return. I'd have a positive nominal return every single year. But yet I still would not meet the goals uh, that we're trying to achieve in the foundation, which is cover the 5% spending. It spends 5% a year and uh, maintain its purchasing power in in real terms, maintain that that investment pool in real terms, and so uh, that's been tough. As, as you know, inflation's been very high, and and uh, keeping up from a purchasing power perspective has has been really tough. But that's our goal. It's ambitious: five percent plus inflation, and uh, T bills are not going to get me there. And so that's how I view risk. I I need to. That's my risk number one is. If I'm spending 5% per year, I've got 95% of my assets that I'm not spending per, per year. And then I can really think down the road and, and really think long-term about. And so you're right, economic sensitive, it's very equity heavy, uh, very, very little fixed income. I do need a little bit for rebalancing, for covering spending. But uh, for the most part, it, it is uh, very equity heavy. Now, I try to think very, very carefully about diversification to macro scenarios uh, within those various equity constructs, you know, owning equity in real estate, owning equity in an oil and gas project, uh, owning equity in public markets, owning owning equity in, in in venture, where you've got these you know business formation and innovative companies that are that are being formed. I'm trying to think about geographic diversification and and industry diversification. So. It's not all chips, you know, one big bet, all chips in, in, in one place. It's, it's really trying to think carefully about um, what could happen from a liquidity, interest rate, inflation, uh, all of these various macro 
scenarios, uh, but I do have the luxury of being able to, to look down the road five to 10 years because I'm, I'm only spending 5% per year. And I guess, uh, you know, obviously we've lived in a, a very changed macro, macro backdrop in the last few years. As you say, inflation has been high. And I guess the kind of growth-heavy, equity-heavy approach certainly did very well over the last decade. I mean, when you look at last year and a year where we had higher inflation, equities down, bonds down, do you think that was, you know, an, an anomaly? Or w- would you be worried about the scenario of, you know, maybe a challenging decade for, for equities or say if we had a period like, you know, people talk about 1966 to 82 where equity markets went up and down, but you look back after 15 years, hadn't really go- gone anywhere. Is is I guess that type of scenario would, would be a big challenge in terms of hitting those uh, longer term goals. Yeah, I, I definitely view 2022 as uh, an anomalous year. Um, it makes it makes sense what happened when, when you looked at what the market was pricing in for interest rate hikes and then what the Fed actually delivered in 2022. Uh, it's it, it makes perfect sense what what actually transpired and how that translated from Fed hikes to uh, markets and uh, particularly public markets, stocks, stocks and bonds. That is kind of a two percent. You know, if you look back at the past hundred years in the United States and say, how many years do we do we get uh, bonds down, st- stocks down? You know, that's that's uh, you could count on one hand the number of years that that, that happens. It's 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 a pretty low probability event, but but one that that made complete sense for what what transpired in 2022. Now, as I look at fixed income today, that's the one area where you can model returns. With a lot of specificity, uh, with a lot of accuracy, and say your you know your your yield to maturity at entry is going to be very very close to your your realized return. And uh, as I look at those yields, they're certainly more attractive today, but they're still not in a place where I'm going to put 100% of the the foundation assets, public public equities, private equities. I look at all my other asset classes. I look at carbon markets. I look at oil and gas. I look at pockets in real estate that, that are still very attractive today, very cash flowing um, from a supply demand perspective, still very attractive. I still think there's a lot of opportunities uh, in outside of fixed income yeah, in, in all of these various you know equity pieces of the capital structure, whether that's a, a public company, a private company, a piece of real estate, a uh, natural resource project, and, and uh, still very much excited about the, the, next, the next 10 years. Although I think it's very likely that the next 10 are not going to look like the last 10. Okay. And when you say that, I mean, is that driven by the valuation? Obviously, that's, uh, I, I suppose, valuations in, in the equity space are clearly different than they were maybe at, back in 2010. Obviously, as you say, you can, you can kind of talk about returns from valuations and fixed income with a degree of certainty. But yeah, what would your perspective be on valuations in kind of the, the, the public and private equity space? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm actually pretty constructive on on valuations in both. Um, certainly, on a backward looking basis, in public equities, you've had in the U.S. You've had an incredible decade. Uh, just looked at the numbers this morning: twelve percent annualized compound return for the ten years. I mean, these are extraordinary returns. International public equities: four percent, and uh, emerging markets. 
annualized returns the last 10 years. So anybody that was doing their asset allocation work and, you know, doing their expected return models and saying, okay, I need to be overweight EM or international valuations 10 years ago, we're just completely wrong. Uh, the, the world gave us something very, very different. Uh, and there were a lot of tailwinds to the U.S. equity market uh, that uh, I think are going to not be there or not be as strong going forward. Now, I still want some. I've still got a 20% strategic allocation to U.S. equities. I've got a 10% allocation to international equities. And so I still want exposure. There's uh, there's some incredible companies around the world in public markets. And um, despite the higher starting valuations today, especially in the U.S., um, I still want some exposure there. On the private equity side, you know, um, this is a tough one. A lot of people have talked about how valuations today are are appear or feel very high. Um, I don't feel it as much on the private side. Certainly, there's been a reset in valuations, especially in public markets, especially in late stage venture. But when you look at early stage venture, you know, right at the point where you're uh, giving capital to a business which is just getting started, what is valuations? I mean, I mean, it's, it's either it's either a very very low multiple of future cash flows when you're looking way out, you know, ten years out, or you've massively overpaid for it, um, and it's it's kind of kind of be binary when you're at that early stage venture, and we're still seeing lots of innovation, lots of really interesting. Um, opportunities to uh, deploy capital uh, in, in in companies around the world today. And on the, on, the, on the buyout side, yeah, I'll, I'll 12, 15 times EBITDA multiples, certainly kind of, um, I wouldn't call it cheap, but uh, not out of the realm of where it's going to be difficult to make money. You could, I, there's still uh, a lot of room there in, in private markets, um, between private and public markets, I, I still think private markets are offering a little bit better valuation setup than than, than publics. And is that? I mean, I guess do those valuation um, perspectives, uh, estimates, etc., feed into your model, or what, what? I guess what is your approach to figuring out the the stri- strategic weights for those eight buckets that you mentioned? Yeah, great question, Alan. Um, it's been it's been a challenge my career to build these expected return models and, and, you know, see what transpires over the next five, seven, 10 years. And you get this takes a long time, but you get this report card of how well did you do on your, on your forecasting. And uh, I classically trained in that MVO mean variance optimization space uh, where you you input your returns, your expected returns, you input your correlations, you input your volatilities, and you get this output of, you know, various asset allocation depending where you want to be on that on that risk curve. I have kind of come 180 after doing that for a number of years. I've realized that's almost a silly exercise. Instead of mean variance optimization, it's it's really error maximization. I mean, it's really taking the error of your return inputs because the model is the, the MVO process is so sensitive to your expected return inputs that you're really just maximizing the error around your forecast of those various 
you know, returns at, uh, and asset classes. So we use something different. Uh, we, we input volatilities, we input correlations, and we input our starting weights. And you could use your actual weights, I think, are the very best thing to use, but you could also use your, your strategic weights, you know, your model weights, whatever you want to put in as your, your starting point. And then uh, we've got an implied return model. It's quite simple. It could be run in an Excel spreadsheet that spits out the return that you have to believe for your weights to be optimal. So you, you give the portfolio a starting sharp ratio, let's call it 0.5. And you input your asset class uh, volatility estimates, correlation matrix, weights, and your returns, you now have a set of returns that you can say, okay, I have to believe that these long-term returns are going to justify, this is what equates to an optimal portfolio from the weights that I've got here. And now you can make us, now you can make decisions about, okay, this is saying that I've got to believe international equities outperform US equities by 2% per year. Do I believe that? Yes or no? No, I don't believe that. So I need to change my weights and you make, it's an iterative process. You go back, change your weights. And so my, my allocation, my strategic allocation to these eight asset classes for publics and for privates are really um, this iterative process of going through what I believe in terms of risk uh, correlations and do I believe these implied returns? We call it the implied return model uh, because it's yeah, uh, you've got to believe that those returns uh, are what's going to transpire in the future for your weights to be optimal. Um, so kind of a kind of a uh, a dumbed down Black Litterman model uh, that's that's. That's a little bit more easier to use in a spreadsheet. It meets it meets uh, the needs of our modeling, and then the last piece you've got to layer on top of that is liquidity. There's no liquidity construct in just a, a sterile MVO process, uh, which we've got to think very very carefully about. Even if we're only spending five percent a year, you've got to cover the spend. You've got to cover rebalancing, uh, and so I don't want ninety five percent of my portfolio in you know, illiquid asset classes. Um, so I've got a, I've got a split where it comes out 55% publics to those four public asset classes, 45% to those four privates. And that feels about right to me in terms of trying to maximize the returns that I can get from private markets, but still having some flexibility to rebalance the portfolio. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Obviously, as part of that process, I guess you have to have inputs on, as you say, volatility, correlation, etc. For for all of the distinct asset classes, and that I guess brings us to that interesting debate around, you know, how volatile are in fact asset classes like private equity and, and VC. Obviously, they tend to be marked less frequently uh, than than public markets, so so may present as being less volatile. But then some people will say, but ultimately the, the underlying uh, risk is, is as volatile. So what's your perspective on that? I love this question, probably because I've spent way too much of my life thinking about it and, uh, and doing work around it. One of my last big research projects before I joined LHM was this exact question. How do we, how do we model the risk of a diversified private equity book that's got PE, buyout, growth, 
venture uh, across vintages. And you're right. Like you've got to believe in those risk inputs because the implied returns in that model are going to be driven off of what you're plugging in from a volatility and a correlation perspective. Um, we could spend a whole hour on this, and I'm sure that's not the, the topic of the show. Uh, but but let me let me share just a few insights that I felt like were interesting to me as I went through this deep research project. We're very familiar with public markets, S&P 500, 500 biggest companies in the U.S. You and I could pull out our phone, trade them anytime. Anytime the market's open, we can, we can, we can trade a basket of those 500 companies. Let's say you've got a basket of 500 private companies, a mix of mature, you know, uh, mid-market, large buyout, some growth in there, and some venture, both early stage and later stage venture. So you've got this, you've got this mix of 500 co- private companies, some super early stage, some very mature, and you can't pull out your phone and buy this basket. You can't trade it. Uh, you've got to get it through uh, either directly Go cut these deals yourselves or through uh, external managers. So that, that's the comparison I'm going to use. The S&P 500, it's liquid basket. Let's call it the private 500, this, this basket of 500 private companies. As you go back to how you, how you calculate risk, you've got three main, three main pieces of risk. You've got your weights. How much money do you have in each asset? You've got your volatilities, just the standalone volatility of each of those 500 companies. And then you've got the correlation matrix of that entire basket, how they correlate, how every single one of those correlate with, with each other. That correlation piece was really uh, the insight for me. So, you know, I, I've had different people say, well, wait a minute, like you're, you're investing in venture capital, like the volatility on these companies is huge. And I'll give you that. I'll give you that. The idiosyncratic standalone volatility on pick your – you know, early stage venture company is enormous. Now its weight, its dollar weight is also tiny. I mean, just tiny. It's the smallest check size in that basket of, call it the private 500. Companies grow and through their operating performance, they grow cash flows. uh, And as those companies continue to grow and and, and perform, they get follow-ons, they get more uh, they do more raises. They also grow from a capital base. So the smallest check size uh, are those ones where you've got the most question around at an early stage. And so you've got a very, very small capital amount, which in the risk model makes it very, very small. You've got a huge idiosyncratic volatility for each of those early stage companies. And then you've got the correlation matrix. The correlations are where I think a lot of uh, people are missing uh, w- when they try to model, when they try to use public market information and model these private markets. i big fan of Cliff Asnes. He's used this term volatility laundering, which is just, it's a great term. I love it. I get it. Um, I'm on the other side of that. All of this work, when you do this and you assign weights, volatilities, and a correlation matrix for this basket of 500 private companies, 
you've got a, the bigger weights in there are not the early stage companies. The bigger weights in there are mature, cash flowing, very stable businesses, and their their volatility is lower. Uh, but really, it come to me the biggest insight through all of this work was the correlation. When you the correlations should be lower when you're dealing with private companies. Their correlations with each other should be lower. They can't be traded together. They there's no future. There, you know, there's no index. There's no ETF that can immediately be move this basket. Liquidity conditions are going to move prices so much faster in public markets than private markets. You don't have banks. I don't, I don't really have a single bank in my private 500, like from a sector perspective. There's no banks in there. There's the correlations of a software company in, in Palo Alto versus a biotech company in Boston, almost zero. Call it almost zero. So when you have that richness of uh, really low correlations among these 500 private companies that I think gets really overlooked by people. Well, let's just use the Russell 2000. Let's just use public market information. Well, it's like you could do that, but it's not reality of what you own in this private 500. You end up with a lot of correlation offsets despite some really large idiosyncratic volatilities on you know the venture capital piece, which is still kind of a, a minority piece of this private 500. Long way of saying, like, how do, what do I get to? I get to roughly a 12 to 15% volatility estimate. That's spot on the S&P 500. I, I, my own personal belief, this is going to be heresy for a lot of people, but my own personal belief is that the volatility of that basket of private 500, if it's diversified across vintage, diversified across geography, uh, is less than the volatility of the S&P. 500. I, I've, I've gone in circles thinking about this and trying to model it. And that's where reserve my reserve the right to change my mind at some point. But right now, I really feel like my own personal opinion is a little bit less vol than the S&P 500. If you're modeling just venture capital, which we do, we break apart venture, uh, private equity and venture capital in our uh, asset allocation construct and our risk allocation construct. I would assign a higher volatility. We've got like an 18% vol uh, for just the venture piece. Again, a lot of that coming from the correlation offsets that are happening with these with these private with these private companies. So yeah, I mean, because I've seen some research on this that would say maybe if you regressed the performance of a VC index on say the S and P 500, you get a beta of maybe. 1.4 or something like that but not only that you might have a negative convexity that in the really extreme scenarios downside for equities it's going to do even worse and you can imagine scenarios why that would be the case but what you say does make sense as well from from a correlation perspective so a couple of questions on that one in terms of your, your 12 to 15 vol estimate on the privates is that assuming that a chunk of it is in stable cash flow generative kind of more, more mature businesses as you say is that what drives that or is it or, or, is that right it's a little bit of both absolutely the bigger the bigger weights like if you look at the S&P 500 today you've got these you know you, it's it's nowhere close to an equal weight index you know you look at Am Amazon Apple Microsoft these are mega cap massive weights 
when I've done my work and looked at a mature private equity portfolio, you actually get something quite similar. You get these massive, massive weights. Those weights tend to be in the more mature um, cash flow, stable companies. And the smaller weights tend to be in the most volatile early stage companies. Um, And then you, you get this richness. So that's, that's a piece of it, but then you get this, you get this richness of correlation. So why can't you just take the volatilities of, of your 500 companies and just weight them and say, okay, I've got these weights. I've got these volatilities. My volatility of the package, why isn't it just the weighted volatility? Well, it is if you assume a correlation of one across all 500 companies, then it's just pure weighted volatilities. But this is where the the insight to me is really powerful, which is like, it is, you get this, you get such low correlations, zeros, 0.1s, 0.2s, 0.3s, that when you put that whole correlation matrix together, really brings down the volatility of that private package. Now I'm talking about the intra-correlations of the companies within the, the private 500. If you ask me, which, which is very important to do in my, in my asset allocation work, well, what correlation are you using between private equity and public equity? I'm using a a 0.6, 0.7, maybe 0.75 correlation, which is high. Like that's, that's moderately high. It's not a one, I still don't think it's a, a pure, you know, one correlation between privates and publics, but it's 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 high. Um, but when I do the whole uh, the whole package of my implied return model, input my my correlations, I've got that 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 between publics and private, uh, public equity, private equity. I've got my volatility estimates, and you know what? You don't have to believe me if you don't like those volatility estimates or those correlations put in what you think you know put in put the put in the model what you think is right and it will spit out an, an applied return that you can then debate with yourself to say do i believe that do i believe that return or not i guess a couple of more <laughs> i think it's a really interesting question um a couple of more questions on it just to get your thoughts on it. i mean obviously we all know about the scenario of correlations going to one, you know, in public markets. Is there a, could, could you get that type of scenario in, in kind of extreme economic downturns that, you know, more startups will tend to fail? So, so those low correlations between the software and, and the biotech company might, might increase a bit. Uh, so, so, so that's one question. And then the second thing is, which I didn't, you know, what about the, 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 the kind of the, Realizable value in these stakes could could also be, I guess, um, take a hit in, in an economic downturn if 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 investors are generally over leveraged and in a, a kind of an, in a liquidation type of mode. Um, now, if you might say that doesn't matter from your kind of pure valuation inherent value perspective, but in terms of valuing those stakes, is there is there is that a reason for saying the tails might? So basically, is the left tail potentially fatter than what you might? think based purely on the correlation? The short answer is absolutely. I'm going to recognize that there's going to be, that there's going to be some economic impact. At the end of the day, if you have exposure to companies and cash flows in a certain country, whether that's a public company or a private company, like there's, there's absolutely this base of correlation and, and uh, sensitivity to economic outcomes, clearly. Uh, when, I, when I do my risk modeling, I do three cuts 
of risk. I do my, what I call average risk. These are my long-term average volatilities of, you know, taking the whole next five, 10 years. What do I expect on average, knowing that on a shorter term, it's, there's going to be periods of higher volatility, periods of lower volatility. It's, it's the averages. That's the first cut. The second cut is the downside. And, and that's really where I can start to think more clearly about exactly the point that you bring up, which is, well, what about in downturns, economic downturns, you know, when correlations rise? This is, this is where I put in like, okay, let's consider this three standard deviation event. What have I got here? I've got, I've got, uh, I've got a recession. I've got higher volatilities. I've got correlations in certain asset classes that are in, uh, that are increasing, and I could input that. I could input those numbers and see, okay, exactly what's my difference between my average volatility and my downside volatility, um, where I where I'm using a different correlation matrix, higher volatilities. And then the third cut I do is relative to benchmark. So think think uh, tracking error. Um, instead of absolute volatilities and correlations, I'm using um, all relative to benchmark, uh, which is which is the third way I kind of use this this risk model in, in helping me think through the risk in my portfolio. And as you go through that process, do you have a number in mind in terms of kind of max drawdown that you're kind of comfortable enduring or absolute worst case or what kind of parameters have you around that? Absolutely. 15 to 20%. If I'm building a portfolio for the foundation that is, uh, that can give me in a worst case scenario, you know, whatever you want to call it, three, four, five standard deviation, even just your worst peak to trough drawdown that you would expect over 30, 40, 50 years, I don't want that to be worse than 15 to 20%. That's just too much drawdown uh, for the portfolio. There's At the end of the day, we say we're all long-term investors and you're long-term until you're not. You, know, you get into these committee meetings and you've got human emotions. And when you're looking at a number that's you know, 15% below you know, your peak portfolio value and, and you're having these discussions, um, there's human behavior that, that creeps into that investment committee and those discussions and those decisions. And um, it, it's, it would be difficult for me to put to build a portfolio and, and offer that as the optimal portfolio if it was, if it was having, if it, if it could possibly have a drawdown worse than that kind of 15 to 20% range. And you mentioned as well, obviously, you have a 15%, I think, allocation to multi-assets, or you have that multi-asset car- category, which is a bit of a catch-all, but but largely hedge funds. Curious to hear, I mean, how do you think about that? What types of strategies are in there? Are they there for absolute return or for downside protection or for diversification or for all of the above? Or what's the thought process? All of the above. We've increased, we just, in our... In our annual asset allocation uh, review, we just increased multi-asset to 15%. And part of the thinking there, again, is uh, the next 10 years probably aren't going to be a repeat of the last 10 years. We like strategies 
that are uh, that are going to benefit from dispersion, dispersion between securities, dis- dispersion between sectors, dispersion between countries, currencies, and uh, one of the only places we can get that is, you know, in kind of long, short space, arbitrage space where they can use both sides of uh, both sides of the book and, and really put together more of uh, more alpha, less beta and benefit from dispersion uh, among all the thousands of, of uh, securities and uh, opportunities in, in public markets around the world. Uh, so we've got a, we've got a few strategies that we like that are in call it systematic long short, very tight risk management, very tight exposures to risk factors, not taking big bets, really trying to minimize those, and and just focus on the alpha signals. And uh, that's a very tough game, but uh, we, we we think that uh, we th- we think to the extent we could find some some managers who have an edge in that area that uh, call it systematic, uh, long, short, could be an attractive area area for us over the next 10 years. And any reason for that preference for long, short, as opposed, you know, in comparison to more directional or, you know, people talk about convergent versus divergent strategies within the hedge fund space. And obviously, if the world is going to look more different and more challenging over the next 10 years, you could make the case for more, you know, um, volatility, greater dislocations, as well as dispersion, you know, which might be beneficial for um, kind of more directional strategies. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I am. I'm really sensitive to what I'm paying for. When I'm paying active fees, how much beta am I getting? How much exposure to risk premia am I getting? And how much, uh, you know, true alpha defined as, you know, after all of the exposure to various risk factors, risk premia, uh, trying to adjust for skill versus luck, you know, what is that skill-based return that I'm left with that I'm really paying for in terms of active fees? I mean, I'm, I'm paying a lot. I'm paying a lot in private equity and venture capital. I'm paying a lot in hedge funds. I'm paying a lot for active management uh, I really want to make sure that I'm getting a return stream that is delivering, uh, that is de- delivering s- something worth paying for. And if it's got a lot of beta, it's really hard for me. It's just e- e- there are some strategies, you know, think distress credit, where it's just going to come with beta. To get the alpha, you have to take the beta. But uh, a lot of those strategies are really hard for me. I've got plenty of market risk. I've got plenty of equity risk. I've got plenty of private equity in, 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 in the portfolio, I'm really looking for something different. I also need that rebalancing capability in my multi-asset bucket. I, I, you know, if, if markets are down like 2022, I really need an absolute returnish, independent return stream. For, I'm really, that's what I'm looking for. I, people have different asset allocations and, and, and I could see how directional could, could fit into to different um, constructs, but I'm really looking to build that multi-asset bucket from an independent return stream, less correlated. Not, you know, I, I don't view it as a tell hedge. I don't, I don't really view it like all that, all that side on the pendulum of, of being a pure tell hedge or, um, you know, crisis 
alpha. It, it's really just indi- it, it, there's some strategies in there that might be down, might be up, but it, but just meant to be a little bit more. It needs to be liquid, needs to be independent, it needs to be alpha worth paying for. Uh, and that's what I'm looking for. I really don't do a lot in directional long short equity. That is a tough, tough game. Trying to predict next quarter's earnings in a very diversified, you know, across sectors. I've got a couple long short equity managers, one in microcap banks, one in one in biotech that are very, very narrow and specific and, and have tighter risk management uh, on between, you know, the long and the short books. Um when, when we can find some nice alpha uh, in those strategies, that's really the only place that I get into, you know, long short, long short equity. Uh, what about things like global macro or managed futures, trend following that type of absolute return, but potentially crisis risk offset type uh, profile? Short answer is I like it. We own some. We've, we're looking at some. We're looking at uh, doing more in that area. My caveat to that uh, answer is that uh, I'm looking for diversity of signal. Horizon, not just, not just you know, a simple trend-following strategy over kind of a medium-term horizon. I'm really looking for an, an ensemble of, of models, a suite of signals and models where uh, – we don't own anything that's just pure trend following, but we have a, a couple things that inside of there are absolutely, you know, a couple of the sleeves inside of this broader uh, macro strategy uh, is very much trend following. And so I tend to skew to those. Again, I, I'm trying to find something more independent return, but also consistent return. I can't, if I have a strategy that doesn't work for seven years, it only gives me alpha in you know some big negative. I, I, to me, that's not really what I'm looking for. Uh, that's just not what I'm looking for. It's 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 hard to stay in those strategies, quite honestly. I mean, so I need something that's that's got a little bit more diversification, a little bit more absolute return nature, where it can be clip, clipping along and, and and not just kind of some simple naive trend following. Uh, you know, model that, uh, that, that, that may work very, very well in a 2022 and then go, and then go, and then go seven years without, without working. I'm, I'm looking for a little bit more diversity there. Interesting. So, I mean, that brings us to the topic of, you know, manager selection and, and how you think about that. And, and you said something interesting at the start with, you know, you were very much a stock picker earlier in your career and then you had the Cornell university and you enjoyed the strategic asset allocation, manager selection, all of that side of things. And do you think it's a different skill set evaluating managers versus doing fundamental security analysis? Absolutely. Now, does having experience with the underlying instruments of whatever they're trading, public equities, futures, commodities, you know, when you're sitting across the table from a portfolio manager evaluating their strategy and what they're doing? Does, does having uh, your own experience trading those instruments and those asset classes help? Absolutely as well. So I think the thing that I loved about it was, you know, coming from a more narrow kind of value. I'm very much a value investor. My 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 finance textbook textbook in undergrad was, was Grandma Dodd's security analysis. And I think I'm always going to have those 
you know, valuation roots to my investing approach. But as I looked at other strategies, I just, uh, across asset classes, across the world, across different, different things that people were doing for both fundamental and systematic processes, I just realized there are a lot of ways to make money. And there are markets and opportunities that to isolate and capture the alpha in that area, it's, it's not just a simple fundamental intrinsic value approach. Uh, they, they may different, need different tools and different strategies. So I loved being able to look and evaluate at all these various people and processes and portfolios and, and different ways of doing things to say, is that we're paying for? Am I getting anything there? My, my default is always going into looking at a strategy, looking at a ma- evaluating a manager is there's no alpha here. That's, that's my default. I've, I've got to be proved otherwise that there's something we're paying for. There's something special here. Either the nature of the market, the nature of what they're doing have to tie together. And they, I've, I've found something, you know, I, I can look in, uh, across my career and say, I've, you know, there are times where I got so excited that I found something special. And uh, it just really gets me excited. But they're, they're hard to come by. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. What does that look like then? Some, something special or something that you're genuinely convinced is non, non-random um, and worth paying for? Capacity constrained. Almost, almost, it's almost always something that sounds um, hard to believe after saying that, you know, ha- having a global macro our, our discussion on global macro, which are these enormous, <laughs> yeah. enormous trillion-dollar liquid markets around the world that can be easily traded, but that's but honestly, those are the hardest for me to underwrite. The very hardest strategies for me to underwrite is as I go as I go from macro and massive market down to uh, smaller and smaller and smaller and, and more niche, capacity-constrained um, opportunities. Where you know, let's let's go back to the microcap banks. This, this hedge fund that only invests in one thing and they do one thing really, really well. I get excited about that. Specialists uh, that have dedicated their career to a specific asset class, to a specific area, to a specific niche. And they're more interested in alpha and delivering a track record that is independent, that is special than growing their economic base. Clearly, there are times where it just if they just took in more AUM and there's demand for that AUM, they could they could get richer if they just did that, and it would dilute their returns. and And sometimes that happens, and I see that as well. But when I can find those people that are like, you know what, I I want returns over economics. I want to deliver something special over just getting rich, then um, that's that's a unique formula for me. When they've got the skill set, the people, the process, uh, and it's all aligned with this portfolio and you can do the attribution and you can look at the biggest contributors, the biggest detractors through time and see like, how did you get into this position? What was your research? What was your insight that led you to take this position, which which led to this really nice P&L, uh, this really nice... Re- you know, return for this year or for this series of years. And as you go and tie that process and that group of people to their, their positions in that P and L and you can see like, Oh wow. They had, they had some unique insight here. They were ahead of the market. They were, um, they had some research or, or a competitive advantage that I couldn't find anywhere else. It's hard to find. It's really, really hard to find. 
but that's um, that's what I'm looking for. Niche, capacity constrained, um, interesting people who are specialists in an area who uh, are are their their bigger focus is really to just deliver exceptional returns. What do you think is the most challenging bit then? Picking managers, would you say? Yeah, that attribution. Attribution is tough, dirty work. Um, I live and breathe attribution, and and uh, for both my own portfolio and my own decision making, it it helps me become better as a, as a portfolio manager and as over overseeing this foundation portfolio. I want to know what drives returns, and. I'm always surprised when I do that. I'm always surprised of like, oh, I thought this was going to be my biggest contributor to detractor. And every once in a while, you know, it's like that doesn't line up with my my own thinking. And um, doing that work with a manager and going through, okay, I want to I want to understand your insights that led to your positions. And doing that attribution work is, is to me is it's difficult. It's very difficult to say what was what's luck. What skill? I mean, you can, I, there are times where, you know, you can ride some waves and you look like a complete genius. It's a really difficult thing to, to pull apart, like all these risk factors. And am I just looking at something that was an artifact of the environment of that, of that five, 10 year period? Am I looking at just it, it, like, how am I, uh, and I've got various quantitative tools to kind of try to pull those apart, but it's, it's never black and white. It's almost never black and white. It's, it's, it's trying to assess and, and understand and pull apart luck versus skill. And it's, it's, um, it's not an easy thing to do. I'm curious, um, obviously you're in a unique seat, as we said at the outset, in the sense that you're running this kind of foundation style portfolio, but you're still dabbling in, in kind of real businesses and, and looking at businesses that are, involved commercially in the economy does that yield important insights for you as you go about sourcing opportunities very much so why can't people just copy let's call it the yell endowment um they can they can pull up the asset allocation from an asset allocation perspective they could they could pull up the annual report and just say those are my weights those are my asset classes those are my weights but you're going to get very very different results than 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 yell, most likely. To me, the magic is really within bucket, within asset class. How do you go, let's take real estate, for example. Let's take natural resources, for example. How do you go about building a real estate portfolio? Like if you if you had a book of office properties in New York and Chicago and San Francisco versus a book of real estate in um, multifamily and industrial and call it the you know Southwest, growing economic areas, like your returns in real estate could be night and day difference. Exact same asset allocation, exact same, but but your exposures and your risks and your returns and, and uh, you know, the managers and the implementation uh, and the, you know, the properties and the implementation of that book could be very, very different. Natural resources, whether you're in agriculture, timber, oil and gas, carbon markets, so much flexibility, creativity uh, in terms of what is going to really drive the risk and return of, of within each of those asset classes. Sitting on, uh, I, I get to sit on a board of a, a company called Nano Yield. It's headquarters a mile from our office. 
we sourced it here. We, we invested in it here at LHM, not in the foundation, but in the company. Uh, it's, it's got an, uh, a really cool technology in terms of nanoparticles that increases plant absorption. The applications uh, for, for fertilizer and crop inputs around the world are just enormous. Global application headquartered right here. Uh, we, we networked into it and, and uh, the insights that I learned from looking at that spe- specific business sitting on the board, understanding the, the types of um, products and commercialization that's happening there, um, understanding their go-to-market strategy, understanding what they're doing in the U.S. versus South America versus India. Does that color my view in the foundation when I'm looking across these asset classes and how to implement? Absolutely. I mean, it, it gives me it gives me point of view. It gives me insight. It helps me think about, uh, you know, right now, boy, maybe within natural resources, I'm gonna I'm gonna tilt toward oil and gas because I see this kind of medium term, long term supply demand dynamic that is really interesting. Uh, where underinvestment today is going to lead to uh, better pricing in the future. And, you know, having those uh, individual, whether it's an individual property or an individual company on the, the Larry H. Miller company side, where we can have those insights to our own businesses. We're big into real estate. We're big into senior living. Uh, we've, we've got a number of um, home services and fintech and and ag tech and a number of other themes and investments across the platform. Having those insights when I'm sitting with managers and talking about what they're doing, uh, talking about our specific businesses, it just brings a lot of circular uh, learning uh, for me to, uh, to, to be able to ask different questions and, and, uh, and, and pick up on different things. Obviously, you know, in your role, you have to not only do all of the investing, but you've got to, I guess, leverage the, um, you know, the skills of your whole team or, you know, the people that you put in place. Um, so curious to get your, your thoughts on what, what does a good kind of investment process look like from kind of A, from a decision-making perspective, you know, is it consensus is it the cio calling the shots or you know you know what what works best obviously there's pros and cons to different approaches and then second i suppose in terms of building a, an investment team what, what does that involve how do you go about hiring talent and putting a team together yeah alan you can ask me in 10 years if i if we did this right it's going to take it's going to take some time to see if if the if the processes and the people and the the frameworks that we've set up are are effective but um we've we've built a small team here we've got three senior people and three junior people uh including myself uh and then a a, a rock star person on the legal side that does a lot of uh work for us as well the three senior people uh my function uh, is overlooking the, the the total foundation portfolio, and then I've got a, a head of the four private asset classes and a head of the four public asset classes. And then um, basically we each have an analyst to support our work. Um, when you look at everything that we're doing across the foundation, across Larry H. Miller Company, that's a pretty small team to, to try to cover Everything that we're that we're looking at, everything that we're trying to do uh, across the world, across all you know, public private markets, 
but we've got a great network. There's a, a sister investment team just dedicated to Larry H. Miller Company that's looking at our, our businesses and our direct deals uh, that we work closely with. I want to empower my people. I try really, really hard to get input from my team. At the end of the day, I feel like I have to sign off on everything. So coming back to your question about you know, process and committees, I've got to sit in front of uh, the foundation board, which is made up of the family members, and look them in the eye and, and say, I believe in this portfolio. I believe in these investments. So I have to get to a comfort level, even if I'm not the analyst or the senior person doing the deep, deep, deep dive on every single strategy, every single manager, I've got to get deep enough on every single one where I can say, okay, I understand your work. I get it. Let's everybody, I want, but I want everybody's opinion. I want my public market's opinion on a private market investment and vice versa. Uh, I want the most junior person to be able to feel empowered to, to pipe up, share their opinion and, and not feel like, uh, oh, the, the bosses have spoken. I don't want to look dumb. And, and so I, I try to balance that. Um, I'm a very opinionated person, uh, but I want to have that balance of empowering my team. So every, every investment that we put forward to the investment committee for the foundation, I feel like has my blessing and has the team's blessing. And if, and if somebody has said, well, I'm not sure about that, let's pause. Let's figure this out. I've learned in writing diligence memos for the last 15 years on various strategies and, and, and managers and, and, and companies, instead of trying to find all of the good information and present the strongest case, it's much better to treat it as a discovery process. Here are the risks. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here, here are the risks that I see. Here's what I think is really compelling. And just treat it as a balanced discovery process and not a, I've got to convince everybody because I've done the work and I want to get this through and I want my name on it in the portfolio. And so we're trying hard. I don't think we've got it nailed down. I don't think we've got it perfected, but we're trying hard in our in our memos and in our discussions to treat it more as a discovery process so that everybody can feel like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with asking a difficult question. And hey, if, th if that leads to something that changes our mind, that's good process. That's good process. I don't, I don't want to take it to the, <laughs> I don't want to take it to the investment committee if we found something that changes our mind about it an investment, and I want that to happen with my team, our foundation investment committee has been very, very supportive. And they'll, they'll ask some questions. They'll come back to us once in a while and say, well, what about this? And but for the most part, as, as our team has done the work and, and uh, done the diligence and presented something, um, they understand the framework. They, under, they understand the asset allocation structure, our strategic targets, what we're trying to achieve over the next five to 10 years. And they're very supportive on individual strategies and managers within that within that framework and in terms of kind of you know, obviously you mentioned kind of analysts um are they tending to be generalists or specialists and uh, I, I mean i guess from your own perspective you've done a bunch of different things over the years is that kind of valuable you, th you know if you want if somebody wants to be a cio is that something you would kind of recommend having done different roles um, to, if that was kind of the ultimate kind of objective? I think so. I think there's this balance between specialist in one area and generalist. And, and there are times where you need both. 
there are times where you need you need deep industry specific knowledge or asset or you know inst- even instrument specific knowledge i mean doing work on various structured credit mark pieces of the structured credit markets and mortgage backed securities and you know having somebody with deep knowledge is going to be really valuable and at the same time when you're discussing well who should what asset class should get the next dollar the marginal dollar and as we go through our annual strategic asset allocation exercise you can't just be a cheerleader for your asset classes that you cover. You've got to be able to think, well, what are my returns and risks here? What are my returns and risks here? And, and we, we, we're just trying to get to the very, very best answer we can. And so um, we're trying to strike the right balance. Again, I don't think we perfected it. We're trying. We, right now, each junior person is connected to a senior person. So we've, we've got, a, we've got a, a junior person on privates a junior person on Publix, and we've got a junior person uh, in the middle that's helping across both, but trying to still have that layer of, of being able to ask questions and poke and prod, whether it's public or private. Because at the end of the day, I want everybody thinking about the total portfolio and our, our long-term returns. Coming back to that, the, the biggest risk that we have is not meeting our objectives. And uh, we want to create something very special. We want to create a very special return stream, 5, 10, 20 years. We look back and, of course, we want to be in the top decile of, you know, foundation performance. But that's not our first goal. Our first goal is really to do something special with 5%, cover the 5% plus inflation uh, and do our very best around delivering on that within a, a nice controlled risk uh, when it comes to drawdown, liquidity, all those things. And uh, as, as the team grows, that's harder and harder to do. It's easier and easier to do the smaller you are. And I've, I've realized as the team grows, it's, I, I'm going to do my very best to kind of keep that balance of having everybody still think of themselves as a generalist and having ownership in the total. I don't, I don't want any, I don't want any, I don't want to get to the point, no matter how big my team grows, whether we're six, the same six people in 20 years or, or whether we've doubled or tripled in size, I don't want to get to the point where somebody's, oh, I'm just the real estate person. I'm just the, I'm just the international equities person. Like I, I, I never, ever want that to happen. I, I want the entire team to feel ownership and, and, and to be able to, uh, to think about uh, kind of punk each other and, uh, and think about um, the, help us get to the very, very best answer. You, you don't get that by just saying, okay, oh, that's, I don't do that. I'll just let them just like, I, yeah, it takes, it takes stretching and thinking and, and getting outside your comfort zone. But um, I'm, I'm hoping we can continue to, to build and, and create that culture here. Good stuff. Well, maybe just to wrap up, um, we always ask guests to, to, if, if you were to give some advice to people starting off in their careers or people who want to get into endowment investing or multi-asset or um, that be, ultimately be a CIO, um, you know, what, what things to read, things to do, uh, what would your advice be? I did not reach out enough when I was younger and, uh, and really seek mentors and really seek to network and create my own um, kind of professional relationships and network with with other people. I should have done more of that. Once I realized that it worked, that most that most people were really actually 
good human beings and interested. If you are genuine, if you are real in, in, in saying, Hey, I have a, I have a passion for this. I'm interested in this. I have found you for these specific reasons because you're in this role and you're doing this thing. And that looks really interesting to me. And I just want to learn. I just want to, can we have a call? Can we go to lunch? Can we, um, I've, I've found that not always, but for the most part, you're going to get a very, it's going to resonate with that person. If you are genuine, if you are authentic and, uh, I would recommend the earlier you can learn that and do that. Like I, I tell students, I, uh, I'm an adjunct professor up at the university of Utah and I, tell students, hey, you, you actually have superpowers as a student that you don't realize you have. Like as long as you've got that .edu email and use that and are reaching out to people, like um, it, most people kind of have a natural like soft spot, like they're willing to respond, uh, especially knowing that you're a student and in that role. You kind of lose that superpower a little bit once you get out in the industry and you're, you know, you're work- if you're working for a fund or something, it's not as, it's like, yeah you're fine. You can figure it out. You got, you know, but, but, uh, reach, reach out network, um, do your homework. Don't, don't spam people. I'm, I'm certainly not advocating the mass, uh, you know, spam campaign, but, um, uh, be genuine, authentic, figure out what you're interested in and, and, uh, and, and learn from others. Obviously in terms of what to read, clearly Dave Swenson's pioneering portfolio management book that, that's like basic reading that's like required reading for for my team beyond that i i wish i had something but i don't i, I don't i don't have a, a a book or one resource i read um as much as i can about different portfolio construction techniques i want to learn the good and the bad and and i see things that make a lot of sense but don't like don't speak to my edge or speak to my competitive advantage. So I've, I've got to do things my way, but that doesn't mean I'm not willing to learn why other people are doing something in a, in a portfolio. Um, so I'm constantly reading, understanding, trying to build conviction, trying to build. And I, I do that through all kinds of stuff. The Harvard business case studies on Yale and the Canadian pension uh, CPB are um, really good. I, I read a lot of industry research. Um, I, I, I network and talk with people and, and obviously met a lot of people in my career doing in similar roles and constantly trading notes and, and uh, comparing notes. I'm very open that way and, and just try to be – I've found that the more transparent that I can be with others all the way down to the details of what I'm doing, the more transparency I get from them. And uh, they realize that I'm not out to – still their ideas or, you know, it, it becomes a much more mutual beneficial relationship of, uh, of showing that transparency and, and just creating really good conversations over the years. So I've got a number of people that we just continue to talk and trade ideas. And that's incredibly valuable to me is, uh, the, the human, the human element. Very good. Well, <clears throat> Clint, uh, this has been a great conversation. Thanks very much for, for, for joining us today. Uh, so make sure to follow Clint, uh, Clint's work because obviously he's got a lot to say about asset allocation and it's more important than ever to understand that in the financial landscape that we are in today. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thank you for joining in and we'll be back again soon with more exciting content. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.